0: Hi, I am Prudence Granger, and I was the carer for my dad who had early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm currently the carer in residence for the Carer Knowledge Exchange. This is Care to Share. On this show, I have open and honest conversations with carers. These conversations touch on some really heavy themes. Please listen with care. Today, I'm sitting down with Sebastian. Seb's husband, Jeff, was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's at a similar time to my dad. Jeff and dad became fast friends. They first met at a Dementia Australia event, and they had a very similar cheeky sense of humour, which was really wonderful to witness. Through their friendship, I was lucky enough to meet Seb. We started our conversation with how Seb and Jeff met.
1: We met online before online was popular. <laughs> and uh, and lots of people don't even remember this mechanism we met on Yahoo Personals.
0: How did that work?
1: You still had to create some sort of profile. And I was only just looking for friends because I wanted to expand my circle of friends. So we met and then we had a blind date at the Four Olives in Manly. We just hit it off. It was a very long... A long date, and not to be cliche, we you know we took a long walk on the beach, and then we we spent some time together. In that first week of meeting each other, we had four dates. Oh wow! Yeah, so we really got to know each other very well, well, yeah, sort of well in that first week. Enough to realise that we'd clicked, and that we we wanted to continue the relationship.
0: Yeah. So beyond a friendship connection. Yeah. 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 Did you feel something special straight away?
1: Yes, I think his. His sensitivity as a person, his caring, his humour. He's very passionate about things, like he's very passionate about politics, very passionate about trains, and he's very passionate about Marilyn Monroe, which I never (laughs) could understand. But anyway, each to their own.
0: (laughs) I've seen the great photos of Dad and Jeff in the Marilyn wigs. Yes. (laughs) So I'm aware of the Marilyn Monroe love. (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: And it continues. And actually, one thing through his dementia, he's continued to – still experience those passions, which is great, which is really important because it's part of his personality.
0: So you had your first four dates all in one week. Clearly there was a connection. Where did it go from there?
1: The relationship just started to take hold and it was really quick. And within five months, he moved in with me. You know, we started going on holidays together, and then he had a house up in the mountains. And so, within a year, we we're already planning, you know, renovating this house and starting that life together, and that's doing all those exciting things. We did go on a holiday to Tasmania in 2007, and that was our make or break holiday, as we were referred to it as, to see whether we could stand each other for two weeks. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) needless to say, it was successful. So it was a great holiday and we still have uh, a lot of great memories from it. And I think we learned a lot about each other as well, what we liked and what we didn't like. Like I didn't like going on a speedboat when it was like sub-zero temperature.
0: I don't think I'd like that either. No. No.
1: So we had a great time and I think we, we, you know, and we always love meeting lots of different people and I think that's the passion that we share on our holidays that we just love talking to lots of different people and knowing what their stories are about.
0: Beautiful. And tell me a little bit more about your life together with the church. So I know religion is important to Jeff.
1: Yeah, Jeff is a devout Catholic. I wasn't so much. To the point in our first week of being together – in our first dating week, we went to high mass at St. Mary's Cathedral, and George Powell was there. And he was the first thing he said, Homosexuality is an abomination. And I said to Jeff, Well, thanks very much. I'm, <laughs> that's oh, the way to yes. impress people. <laughs> <laughs> but then when he moved in with me, we, we joined a local parish at Manly. And at the parish level, they were very accepting. We've just probably been very fortunate that the communities that we've been part of in Sydney and out in the mountains, have just been really accepting and have just treated us as people.
0: Mm, it's really lovely to hear. Let's fast forward. So you met in 2006, so 10 years later, roughly 2016, you start to notice Jeff having some issues. What were the early signs that there wasn't something quite right?
1: Well... Actually, it was Jeff who noticed, which was really interesting. He noticed that he was starting to have some challenges in some of his day-to-day activities that he had never experienced before, and he was a little bit concerned about it. He always has demonstrated a level of self-awareness. So he took some long service leave at that point and then started that process. So he consulted his GP and said, you know, there's something not right here. And then we started the journey of all the testing, (laughs) you know, seeing neurologists, geriatricians and, you know, the myriad of tests to undertake. First set of tests, they came back and said there was no sign of dementia. But it wasn't until we had further tests and that they had to undertake things like a nuclear brain scan and a PET scan that they detected that there was something there because it's position in the back of the brain. He was happy to get some answers and actually know what position he was in. For me, it was a completely different story. I went straight into grief Mm. at that point. And as most people do, you go straight to this end stage. Yeah, I was was absolutely distraught.
0: The process of diagnosis, how did that affect you personally and your relationship during the process of it? Because I imagine all these tests and the unknown would have been really difficult.
1: We were keen to understand what was going on. And I suppose my emotions were going up and down thinking, well, you know, you go through these tests and you go, well, I hope it's no, I hope it's no. But in the back of your mind you're going, "Mm, there's something here. Particularly when they ask you to do things like draw the clock or (laughs) draw a cube and things like that. And when you see that for real, you're going, yeah, there's an issue here. Mm. So that becomes more of a reality. And I think that's when – I think you sort of subconsciously start to grieve at that point. You're going, oh, he's starting to lose – his abilities, And then you start thinking about all the other things that – other things, day-to-day things that you never thought anything of, like, you know, when he leave, left his wallet behind or, you know, forgot to do up his fly, you know. <laughs> but then you go, right, it all, it's all coming together now.
0: He's finally diagnosed in April 2017 and you're processing that together and then you start to plan a wedding. At that time, it had just been legalised, marriage equality in Australia. And so was a really exciting time for a lot of people in the queer community. But I guess for you, the marriage was a little bit more practical.
1: Yes. Whilst I was supportive of the plebiscite, I had no intention of rushing ahead and doing anything about it. But we we had a talk about it and we thought, well, we're heading into a, a level of uncertainty in terms of our relationship, in terms of our health. And if it means getting married, we'll actually help that. And and provide some clarity over, you know, who the next of kin is or strengthen some of the arrangements that we'd already had in place for years, like our power of attorneys and enduring guardianship. So it was just adding an extra layer mm-hmm. from a legal perspective. And also we'd been together for so long. At that stage, it was just a formality. So we just wanted to go to the registry office <laughs> and get married. So he was quite keen to actually go to the local courthouse and just do the whole courthouse uh, rigmarole in there and go, yeah, that's great. Mm. Yeah, but that didn't happen.
0: <laughs> no. You had quite a glitzy wedding.
1: <laughs> yes. our Some of our friends were reluctant to accept us just going to a registry office. And they said, no, we've got to have a party and do that. And I suppose me being in a typical Italian, I go, let's go over the top then. So we did. <laughs> we organised a wedding, which was really lovely. You know, I organised it in three months had a theme of, you know, Jeff loves his Hollywood glamour superstars, so all the tables were named after all the the movie stars and it really had probably represented us as a couple, particularly Jeff in terms of all the things that he loves. And also we asked our guests to all make donations to Dementia Australia. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so we, that we in lieu of gifts because we thought that's really important for us.
0: Your newlyweds, there's this, you know, beautiful love there. But the relationship is shifting. Can you talk me through a bit of that?
1: Yeah, I took six months off the year after we, we got married just so we could do some traveling. Just you know, and just spend some time together without having to worry about work. But that's when things started to change. So Jeff made the decision to give up his license at that point. And I think over time, it's probably hard to sort of pinpoint the times, but over the years, you know, the dynamic changes from being in a relationship to being the carer and the person you're caring for. So, and that, that really changes how you communicate. It's probably been in the last two years, more so that where things like his speech has started to be impaired So communication becomes a little bit more difficult. The dynamics also of intimacy change Mm. as well because when you're helping somebody with their everyday needs, so like personal care and things, so your level, you know, your physical intimacy changes, to be quite honest, you know, because you're, you're being intimate on different levels.
0: That shift, what did that mean for your identity?
1: Well, I become Jeff's carer. So I think I lose part of my identity. And that's reflected when we see people, people always say, before they ask me, or if they ask me at all, they will always ask, how's Jeff?
0: I guess there's two sides of it. Obviously, you want to be in this role. You want to care for Jeff, who you love so dearly. But losing that sense of, you know, your independence as an individual, how, how has that affected your well-being?
1: Well, significantly, I think. <laughs> Without, with, uh, It's very hard to have time for myself. Everybody always says to me, oh, you should take time out for yourself. But it's really difficult because you have to plan it. And sometimes planning respite or additional support to come in is very time-consuming because people are not available at your beck and call, and nor should they be, Well, mm as much as I'd love them to be, but but they're not. Yeah, so it's very difficult to have time for myself. Coming into the city is probably the only opportunity, like that driving in or on the train is probably that time where I have time for myself.
0: And I know you've been very strategic or particular about the team you have around Jeff. So I imagine because you're particular for good reason – that it's more difficult to get that space because you want to make sure that Jeff is with someone that you can trust.
1: That's right. And I think we're, we're at that stage now where we've got three people in the team who support him, who are absolutely superb, and they work well together. They all have different strengths and bring different parts of their personality to the relationship they have with him, which is great. But it's the process of trial and error in getting that right personality mix. It's not just simply, well, here's a support worker, plonk them in, and then Bob's your uncle. You know, they need to connect.
0: So what does a typical day for Jeff look like?
1: I develop the schedule, basically, of all the activities that he does, from the time he wakes up to the time he goes to bed. So in addition to just normal activities, you know, like activities that we all kind of take for granted, you know, like having a shower, mm-hmm. getting dressed, things that we just do as second nature. But there are things that he requires assistance with. And then there's lots of appointments that he goes to, like all the therapies, you know, physiotherapy, exercise physiology, speech therapy, music therapy, Dementia Cafe, you know, there's all, the, lots of activities that he attends and he likes to do them all in the morning and then he has this nap in the afternoon because he's too, you know, he's exhausted and I think even probably the support workers probably need a bit of a nap too. Uh, <laughs> but they kind of, it's like they do that in the morning, they're working at high speed and then they have this nap and they all shift a gear and they, in the afternoon it's just a bit of a relaxation. But they're there until, you know, around 6, 6.30 until I come home.
0: The scheduling because it is so particular, for you, does that get a little bit exhausting having to kind of put that schedule together and then, you know, you've got your own work and responsibilities on top of that?
1: Well, because I'm a project manager, so it was kind of second nature to do it. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was actually good planning to do that and put that together at the beginning. But then I think it's also reaped its rewards in the long term. Because we have a standard set of activities that actually happen, it's then easy for the support workers and for myself to observe the changes mm-hmm. and also document those changes as well. So, And in terms of NDIS reporting, it's really important to have something substantial to see how things are changing. And observation is the best tool for mm-hmm. that and, and documenting those observations. And then we can clearly see, well, you know, five weeks ago he was able to do this and now it's this is how it looks.
0: Having worked as a support worker, if I turned up and I had a schedule and exact things to do for the day, I, I would actually find that quite great because, you know, a lot of time you turn up and it's up to you to figure out what to do to keep them engaged or entertained. And I guess when something happens with Alzheimer's or dementia, you don't necessarily know their interests and it's harder to figure them out mm. on your own accord. Mm. That's right. um, so if you have a loved one who already knows their interests, you can go, hey, they love Marilyn Monroe. You then have, you know, a jumping point to create an experience with them that is enjoyable for not just them, but you as well.
1: When I come home, I say to him, how was your day? If he says, I had a great day, that's all I need to know.
0: Exactly. Because
1: it's all about how they feel.
0: Mm. The
1: routine's there to help maintain that, but it's generally if he responds to the day and says, I feel great today, I had a great day. That's the important measure for me.
0: COVID lockdowns were a challenging time for everyone. While Sebastian was happy to have more time at home together, for Jeff, not being able to socialise was hard.
1: There were sometimes of frustrations where we couldn't see people, like, you know, they couldn't go to their support activities. He really used to look forward to those, and that didn't happen because he wasn't able to see people.
0: And I think that social element is really important for their mental health, because... Within the deterioration, I found when dad is more active, engaged, positive, the process is slower.
1: I agree. And I think that's evident with Jeff as well. He always loves to be out doing things and seeing people and talking to people. Some of the feedback I've received from his carers and support workers is that, geez, he just talks to everybody. <laughs> like everybody knows who he is. We're always running into people down the main street that he's talking to. Mm. Yeah. And he talks to people he doesn't know either. And he was always like that before. He's interested in people. So social engagement's really important. The challenge that I find is if, if I'm having a day off and I just want to be at home, he he struggles with that, of just being at home and not going out and, and going to his favourite cafe or, or going out and socialising. So, we've got to be out there doing things.
0: <laughs> Dad was exactly the same. Go, go, go. Had to be doing things all the time. What are we doing today? I'm like, we're going to watch a movie. No. <laughs> I remember once I was like, all right, I'll take you ice skating. And I was like, oh, great. He knows how to ice skate. I know how to ice skate. He taught me how to ice skate when I was younger. It'll be super easy. Now, Yes, he could ice skate, but he didn't understand the rules of the rink. Mm. So he'd go in the opposite direction or like go through the middle when some figure skater was doing a trick and almost get his head chopped off by the blade. (laughs) And I've never been more stressed in my life. And I remember pulling him off the ice rink, sitting him down and being like, if you do not follow the rules, we are going home. You will have no more ice skating. And there's this woman next to me watching me yell at my father like he's my child. (laughs) (laughs)
1: well it's kind of that role well it's not even well i suppose for you it's the Mm. role reversals it's like you become the parent and he becomes a child and i suppose with us well he's becoming the child for me yeah because that's how essentially how you look after them
0: Mm. do you find you kind of compartmentalize who jeff is in certain scenarios to make it easier
1: you kind of have to don't you in particular in our case, in maintaining the relationship. So when am I the carer? When am I the partner? Yeah. The one compartment becomes bigger than the other.
0: Yes. Right. Definitely. I found myself calling Dad Timmy rather than Dad because it broke my heart to call him Dad sometimes, especially when I was feeding him mm. or, like, you know, trying to get him to get ready for the day mm. or tying his shoelaces. Mum would be like, why do you call him Tim? And I was like, Because it's too hard to call him dad in those moments.
1: Yeah. And I think for us, that shifts the dynamic of our relationship a lot because you're not on equal playing ground anymore. Yeah, that intimacy level and emotional level as well. Mm. Yeah.
0: If this is too personal of a question, you don't Mm. have to answer. Mm. But speaking of that intimacy, losing that intimacy in a relationship level, what was that process like for you? How did that feel? Did it just slowly happen or did you make a conscious decision to shift? How did it play out? I think
1: it slowly happened. It's Mm. just evolved over time. And I think you kind of lose interest in it Mm. as well or even lose interest in the desire of it Mm. as Mm. well.
0: Did you notice it happening or were you like one day, oh, that's not a part of our relationship anymore? Uh, Okay.
1: Oh, I did notice it happening, yeah, yeah, because that dynamic changed.
0: Mm. And have you found there's unique? difficulties navigating care as a gay couple.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, everybody thinks he's my father. We had a situation a few weeks ago when we were in a cafe and I was helping him and somebody walked up and said, "Oh, it's so great how you're looking after your father like that." I'm going, "He's actually my partner." And then when we were in we went to the ER and the nurse came out and said, "Oh, you can come and see your father now." I think people don't understand, you know, the dynamic shouldn't be any different. Like, the relationship shouldn't be any different in terms of who I am. I'm his partner. Just the same as if I was his wife. They shouldn't be treating me any differently. I think acknowledging what I need help with, because in a same-sex relationship, it's very hard to define responsibilities by gender, as you would traditionally do that in a heterosexual relationship. So... You know, I haven't had people rushing to say, Oh, I'll come and cook for you, or I'll come and mow your lawn, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. They just think I've got it all under control. And I probably give that vibe off as well, that I because I do it all. But it's not something people will just jump to and go, like if, if Jeff was my wife, you know, people may say, Oh, well, I'll come and do something for you. I don't think I've also met in the advocacy work that yeah. I've done or even in support groups, I haven't met a lot of other same-sex couples. And that you can relate to, because sometimes, you know, even in in a support network perspective, being able to connect with other same-sex couples who are going through the same thing, I haven't met a great deal of them, particularly locally. And then that, that creates a difficulty, I think, because there's just a different dynamic. And in terms of relating, like being able to share your experience with somebody who gets it, that's been a bit of a challenge for me, I think.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your advocacy that you've done?
1: Early on, I think I've, I've done a lot of work with Dementia Australia in terms of um, probably more from an educational perspective. And I think, you know, we've been in a lot of videos and probably been in a few, I think, some of the research councils and also presented at a number of events, which has been really good and really interesting. And, and we've tried to do a lot of advocacy locally. So we've established our creative dementia workshops because it was really difficult to get things out to the area where we live. And generally, to do anything, we'd have to go to the city. So a friend, our friend Kaz and myself, established the workshops, which has been, they've been quite successful. So we're about to start our third series
0: mm. uh, this year. Mm, Dad was really enjoying them when they were on.
1: Yeah. I suppose the social element of it was really important, you know, as well as doing the art and the mindfulness and the music. But I think the social component was probably mm. the bigger part Definitely. Uh, For carers and for those who are living with dementia, I think. So it was just an opportunity, an excuse for everyone to get together and do something creative as well.
0: Moving on to a little bit more focused on you, how do you find time for yourself?
1: The impossible question. Yeah, I'm still working that out, to be quite honest.
0: Do you think if there was, I guess, more structures of support and less, you know, red tape, more options, it'd be easier?
1: I think we're getting to a point now where there is probably some support available to enable me to go and have some time for myself. But then I think as Jeff's dementia progresses, then his ability to deal with that, like particularly if it's on a weekend if I say I want to just go and spend a few hours on my own, he yeah. struggles with that. yeah because he I think he thinks what's well, the weekend we should be spending time together. There's that side of it to to manage and to deal with because there's a bit of you know separation anxiety, I think.
0: I guess it's also really hard to be like I need a break from my loved one.
1: Yeah, well, he often reminds me. He says, oh, you need to spend some time. You you need to have time for yourself. I'm going, well, I'm trying. (laughs) I'm really trying.
0: And what are some things that you and Jeff are currently enjoying together?
1: Well, um, we've been watching lots of shows. We've just revisited um, Kath and Kim, Ooh. which we decided we we stumbled across it on Netflix, and we thought we'd start watching it. And we've just been laughing ever since. We just can't stop laughing about it, even though you know it was done twenty years ago. Mm. <laughs> we've just started watching it;
0: it'll always be relevant. Yeah,
1: that's right. And we <laughs> and now we've we've started the lingo in the house now, which is probably not great because now we start talking like them in the house.
0: Baby
1: Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the noise. Noise. <laughs> So we keep having our, we keep laughing about it and just, we just love watching it. But we, there are a couple of shows that we love watching. We still love watching together, which is good. So we like our road trips. I think we, was one thing that was really important part of our relationship earlier on. We used to go on a lot of weekend road trips, which we love. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we there are things that we love doing together. Like we love going out to breakfast. You know, he's, he's got his favourite cafes. We love going to Bathurst, spending a lot of time up there and going to see movies and things. So yeah, I suppose I've still got my work commitments as well. So I'm still working full time. So that takes up time.
0: But from my understanding, after Jeff's diagnosis, you did take a shift on what was really important to you in regards to work and lifestyle?
1: Yeah, so I think I used to be very work-orientated and that was my number one priority. And I think after the diagnosis, I think you do a lot of self-reflection and think about what's important personally. Yeah, So I think to some extent you, you become reflective of the importance of life. You know, we can be so caught up in in doing things. Probably caught up in the materialism of life, which I think that's all gone now, which is good. So I just I don't worry about stuff like that. Yeah, there's a different view to some extent.
0: Yeah, nice shift on what is important.
1: Yeah, I think meeting all the other people in the group, Jeff's friends who are also living with dementia and, and the wives, because I think they're only wives because they're all, yeah, we're the only gay couple in the group. <laughs> that's been really good too, you know, connecting yeah. connecting with everybody. Being able to share those experiences, yeah, and be support for each other because we share ideas, you know, we we share ideas, we share frustrations. We're there for each other.
0: Yeah, it's really beautiful. Community, I think, has really been a theme through all these conversations I've been having, how important it is to Mm. have these connections, have people who understand, have others to support and be there for you through these processes because it's really easy to feel like you're the only one experiencing something and... To become quite isolated and internal, which, you know, brings out more frustration.
1: Yeah, and I I must admit that I feel quite isolated and lonely at times in doing this. I think whilst there are other people who are going through the same thing, I feel like I'm going through this on my own. I suppose it's because how I'm feeling about it, I'm feeling about it on my own. And thinking about the trajectory of the dementia and what it means and thinking about that, you know, sometimes I think, well... I'm the only one who understands that in our context of our relationship, you know, and and then I worry about it and think, well, what is it going to look like in six months down the track or a year?
0: And you don't know. You don't know. I mean, dad's process was not like anyone else's and his, you know, rapid decline in the last six months was not something we expected considering the previous trajectory. So you don't know. And I guess it forces you to be really present with what is.
1: yeah. And it's interesting, I think, and I think a lot of people experience this, what I'm about to say, whilst I've got the responsibilities of caring and I I think I do a reasonably good job of it, of, you know, managing the admin and managing the carers, and then I kind of then have some self-doubt about how I'm performing at work, thinking, you know, am I doing a good job at work? Is my responsibilities of being a carer and that being a priority actually impacting how I'm performing at work? Is balancing that as well, you know, because I think I was so used to being on all the time for work, and now I'm going. Well, no, I can't.
0: There's mm. a time. And I mean, that I can't be. you know, perhaps it's a good thing to set boundaries with work. I yeah. mean, it shouldn't be your whole life. Yeah. And there's also s- self-regulation. I think which is really
1: hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's a process you've got to go through, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a nice place to seal things off Mm. I'm really really grateful for the time you've given us today and sharing your story and your journey and I think you have a very unique and realistic perspective which I really appreciate so thank you for sharing that with us
1: my pleasure thank you
0: thank you